You're listening to TIP. In today's episode, I'm joined by one of our most popular guests, Mr. Colin Roach, for the ninth time. As you'll quickly learn, there is a very good reason why our audience always wants to learn more from Colin. He is the smartest they come. We'll continue where we left off on episode 370 with our inflation masterclass. We will learn why deflation is more likely than hyperinflation, what the two-year treasury is telling us, and whether we're entering a period of the Fed call. Colin has been spot on so far, and today provides an updated outlook for inflation. You definitely don't want to miss out on this one. Here we go. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and I'm here with fan favorite Colin Roach. And whenever I say fan favorite, I mean it. This is the ninth time we had Colin on our show. So Colin, welcome back. It's great to be here. I love talking to you guys. So Colin, we'll continue almost where we left off on episode 370 in our masterclass about inflation. Uh, inflation is still the talk of the town, and today it's no different. You're on record to have predicted the high inflation. And even though you also said that you've been surprised by the persistence of COVID and the war in Ukraine, like the rest of us, but you're now saying that inflation will moderate in the coming years. Why? Well, you know, I think I've, I've mentioned this and I mentioned this in the masterclass. I think that the big important takeaway from COVID versus the financial crisis, it's such a nice comparison because a lot of the policies were very similar. But the main thing that we did differently was we ran these big fiscal deficits. And so that basically means the government spent a lot more than it taxed. And so the government essentially printed a lot of treasury bonds to finance its spending during COVID. And so, you know, to put this into perspective, we did roughly $7 trillion of deficits over the two-year period, basically over COVID versus we ran about an $800 billion total deficit during the financial crisis. So we're talking about these programs were just monumentally different. And the size of the COVID response was so tremendous. And to me, that was always the big lesson from the financial crisis. I am sort of um, relatively well known for having been a sort of a disinflationist or deflationist coming out of the financial crisis, because I basically, I understood that from studying Japan, and their bouts with deflation and implementing quantitative easing that when you look at it from an operational level, quantitative easing is essentially just an asset swap. It, it's the central bank comes in after the treasury deficit spends, and then they, they exchange types of assets, essentially. So the private sector ends up with, a treasure, or with a, losing a treasury bond and gaining a reserve deposit. And you can, from a monetary perspective, you can have this big sort of boring debate about what is money and you know is a treasury bond money like and in my view a treasury bond is essentially like a savings account and so the private sector from qe it gets a, a savings account and loses a checking account so people don't feel wealthier even though from a very technical sort of economic perspective the government has printed money you know people would say because people consider reserve deposits, obviously, to be more money-like than a treasury bond. And so 
in a traditional economic model, QE looks like it should be inflationary or even hyperinflationary when there's, you know, they're doing trillions and trillions of dollars of it. But from a really, I think, basic household perspective, all the household did was exchange the composition of its assets. And so, you know, the Fed's response to QE or to, um, to COVID was very, very similar. They had this huge balance sheet ramp up. They cut rates. They did all the same sort of stuff that they did during the financial crisis. But the difference between the financial crisis and COVID was that the Treasury was the one that really ramped up their balance sheet and had this huge explosion. And so that's why I was much more worried about inflation coming out of COVID than I was with the financial crisis because of the Treasury's humongous response. And so while I got the direction of inflation right, I think the the tricky thing with all of this has obviously been the magnitude and the you know the longer lasting effect of it. And I think a lot of that is just that you know, I didn't think there'd be, God, I didn't think we'd still be talking about this thing at this point. You know, who could have predicted the Ukraine war, which, you know, Russia basically shuts down one of the largest commodity producing countries in the whole world. You know, so there's been all these sort of weird, you know, impacts that have, I think, elongated the impact of inflation and made it a much trickier environment to navigate. And so, but to me, that is the, that's the big lesson coming out of this is the Treasury and fiscal policy is really, really important. And that's really important to understand going forward because, you know, again, let's put this in perspective. In 2021, as of the end of June, at this time last year, the Treasury had run a deficit of $1.7 trillion. These are huge, huge numbers again. Okay. So this is still, at this time last year, we're still in sort of the throes of really heavy duty fiscal stimulus responding to COVID. So far this year, through June of this year, the Treasury has run a deficit of $137 billion. Okay, so we're almost running, I mean, in terms of the way the US government usually spends and runs a deficit, this is almost a surplus, which is very, very unusual. So there has been, on a relative basis, there has been a huge fiscal tightening. So People talk about the Fed and how the Fed has raised interest rates and you know a lot of that has caused this sort of like retrenchment in demand and tightening of the economy and the thing that's lesser talked about is this huge decline in the relative size of the government's deficit and that's I think you know when you combine these two things raising interest rates is a very very powerful mechanism because it can especially in a time like right now it can cause a lot of turmoil in the housing market we're starting to see that already and if you adhere to the theory that the US economy basically is a housing economy well that's troublesome from a demand perspective so high mortgage rates have snuffed out demand for mortgages made it basically unaffordable for you know, they've locked out another 40 million people with the rate increases from the last few months. So huge, huge number. So demand is coming way back. And that has this huge knock on effect through the whole economy. Because, you know, when you think about everything that goes into a house, you know, think about the demand for how furniture now goes down and refrigerators and appliances and all these other things that have a knock on effect through housing. But then when you combine that with the fiscal retrenchment, there's been a big, big government tightening. So we had this big explosion in government spending and government stimulus in general. 
And now we're having a big, big give back. And if the government had continued to do these big programs in perpetuity, that would have worried me. I, I would actually, I, I hesitate to say anything like hyperinflation, but a much more prolonged 1970 style rate of inflation where you had double digit inflation that lasted for basically 10 years, that's a much more plausible scenario under you know, that, those circumstances. But right now, the opposite is happening. And so how fast will it come down? I think it's going to come down relatively slow. But I think that we're now, I think disinflation, meaning a falling rate of positive inflation, is going to become fairly well entrenched in the economy over the course of the next 18 to 24 months. On your wonderful blog, prackcap.com, you said, and I've quote, there is no chance of hyperinflation. I would argue that the risk of deflation is substantially higher at this point than the risk of hyperinflation, end quote. Could I please ask you to elaborate on that? Yeah, so I think, you know, kind of going back to that forward-looking, you know, expectation of, of a recent trend in the fiscal retrenchment and the, the Fed's big attempt to really snuff out inflation, I think that the risk of deflation now becomes greater because I think that these are both very, very outlier events. So we're talking about you know pretty unusual things to begin with, but the risk of a sort of mini 2008 repeat where let's say housing prices, I expect housing prices to fall five to 10% over the course of the next 18 months. And that's kind of my base case. So housing is going to be relatively weak, I think, over the course of the next year at a minimum. There is a chance that I'm wrong about that, that the Fed response is much bigger than we expect, that they're much more aggressive and much more prolonged with it than we expect, and that housing falls more than I expect. I mean, housing boomed so much during the pre-COVID period and then the COVID period that you could easily get a 20% you know, retracement in house prices. Wouldn't surprise me at all if something like that happened. That And that would have a very big negative impact on the economy. I think that if that happened, by the time you know that plays out, let's say it's 2024 and housing prices have fallen 20% from their peak, I think at that point, there's a very good chance that CPI readings and the, the Fed's preferred measure, PC, core PCE, personal consumption expenditures, is negative at that point. And that's just going to be a function of demand just falling off of a cliff. And this you know, huge knock-on effect from, from the negative housing market. So to me, that's a much, much more likely scenario than a hyperinflation because in large part, because if you've read my research in past years, you know that hyperinflation generally occurs under very, very unusual specific scenarios, usually scenarios such as very corrupt regimes a government losing a war, a complete regime change in the government, these sort of really like seismic events that are very disruptive at a government level. And the government usually responds to that by then printing huge amounts of money. And so, well, we've technically printed a lot of money in the last two, three years, you haven't had this big sort of disruptive you know, geopolitical event at a government level that I think has caused a complete collapse in the in the faith in the currency. And in fact, I would argue that if anything, what we've seen in the last sort of, especially the last 12 months is, if anything, we've seen increasing demand for the dollar in a relative sense. And so 
you know, to me, it's very hard to envision, you know, yeah, if we were having this discussion and we were sitting in, you know, Nigeria or something, it would be a totally different discussion. But when you're talking about the world's reserve currency, you're still talking about on a relative basis, you know, and even if you believe all fiat currencies are trash, the US dollar is the least trashy of the trashy currencies. So it's very hard for me to envision a scenario where you get this huge collapse in demand for the currency in large part just because the US economy's important role in the the global economy and combine that with just the fact that uh, you don't have the, the environment for this sort of seismic shift in faith in the currency. One of the major macro trends has been globalization, which have been inherently deflationary. For example, not pushing up wages in the US that otherwise would have if Americans had not imported the same amount of goods from countries with cheaper labor. Another is the major demographic trends. Could you please explain how demographic trends can be inflationary or deflationary? Well, long-term trends in demographics around really the whole world are pretty alarmingly worrisome for economic growth. And it's one reason why, you know, it's interesting. We went through this, I think that the last sort of hundred years were really, they were sort of unusual. And you look at economic trends, the really long-term economic trends, one to 2% growth was pretty normal. That was kind of the status quo. And we had this really unusual period where, especially in a lot of the developed world, the populations boomed. And so you had, you know, obviously like the baby boom and things like that, where at a very basic economic level, more people means more demand. It means more output, more things are going to be created. And so, you know, from a, a crude sort of economic level, you can argue that, you know, future economic growth is essentially well, we can be more productive or we can produce more people, which will produce more demand, which will produce more stuff. And that's sort of a crude economic model, but it's generally in the long run, that's generally how economic growth works. And so seeing these declines and even slowdowns in demographics is worrisome just because it's foreshadowing of lower growth. And I think, you know, again, Japan has really been the playbook for all of this stuff, whether you even look at like QE and fiscal policy, or if you look at their demographic trends and, you know, what's been going on there and the very low rate of economic growth there. And I think that that's already playing out across the the entire developed economic system. And it's hard to see that changing, especially, you know, in the US, we're seeing this sort of reversal of some of the hyper globalization trends where the US is becoming a little bit more of a closed economy, a little more abrasive towards immigration and some of the things that have really benefited the United States in terms of, you know, you can essentially argue that immigration is like stealing other people from another country and benefiting in economic terms because you're, you know, you've got this multiplier in terms of people. And it's, that's especially true in the United States where we haven't just grown by having, you know, positive immigration trends. We've, we've grown in large part because we've benefited from a very high quality immigration. Our education system has attracted a lot of people that have built enormous valuable companies here and goods and services. So there's been an even bigger multiplier effect through, through that effect in the United States. And a lot of that's reversing now. And so it's a little bit worrisome to see the decline in demographics because it's foreshadowing of lower growth. And so 
it's one of these big secular trends that I think in the long run makes it hard to foresee really, you know, even moderately, you know, high inflation, something like or a return to the 1970s. Because again, going back to the 70s, a lot of that was a population boom. People don't talk about how the 70s were were still, you know, the back end of the, you know, the really the most, some of the most productive years of the baby boomers. And so you had this huge demand boom at a time when you had supply shocks and things like that. And you're not going to have those trends going forward because we just don't have the population growth that we did back then. So yeah, it's, it's worrisome. But you, when you combine that with things like, you know, technology growth and, um, you know, the, the coming fiscal retrenchment and things like that, it's hard for me to imagine that some of those big secular headwinds won't, you know, be things that are kind of anchoring inflation to some degree. So let's dive deeper into inflation. Could you please explain the concept of velocity of money and whether that's an important concept to understand inflation? This is a tricky one. So in the traditional old monetarist methodologies, you would argue that, you know, something like MV equals PY, which is basically that money times velocity equals price times growth, basically. And that's, it's a crude sort of model. And I'll explain why. It's because the you can back out velocity based on what your definition of money is. So when you when you look at the front end of that equation, M times V, well, the tricky part about that is you have to define M, okay? So if you assume that M, for instance, is bank reserves, well, when you run your model based on that and you look at MV equals PY, well, what does that mean for inflation and economic growth? Well, you assume that it means that demand will increase, okay? So quantitative easing technically is an increase in M, okay, under a traditional sort of monetarist model. Well, that should increase P in the long run, assuming that you don't get a big, a big surge in, um, in V. But when you reverse that, you go through the math on it, well, if P doesn't increase, then V has to have declined. Okay, so you can kind of back into this model where when you look at, you know, this has been a common excuse for why QE didn't cause inflation. People will argue, well, V just went down. Well, of course V went down because P didn't go up. But the problem with that is that when you look at quantitative easing, well, the problem there is that your definition of M was wrong the whole time, you know, or at least your definition of M was, I think, very, very loose to a point where because you didn't understand the difference between treasury bonds and reserves, well, you know, like I said before, quantitative easing was just this asset swap. And so technically we increased the quantity of M, but if you included treasury bonds in the definition of M, well, from a private sector perspective, all that happened was the the amount of M was swapped. You know, the fifth the Fed created more uh, reserve M and eliminated from the private sector treasury bond M. And so there was this clean asset swap. And so the velocity of money went down in part because you could argue that was quantitative easing, for instance, coming out of the financial crisis, was it deflationary? Basically, what the, the government did was they reduced 
the value of the M that they created because they reduced the amount of interest they were paying. And that's what quantitative easing does. And so there's this interesting sort of theoretical debate about, you know, was quantitative easing inflationary or was it deflationary? And I'm not really sure. I mean, there's all sorts of like knock-on effects from quantitative easing and interest rate impacts and things like that. And I don't have like a strong definitive view, but I, I suspect that quantitative easing is far less powerful than people generally suspect. And so, you know, getting back to the question, the, with the velocity of money, it's this very tricky thing to really articulate because you have to have an accurate definition of M. And I prefer to use, you know, I don't think you can use a black and white definition of what M is. I think that in my view, money is something that exists really on a scale. You know, like I argue that stocks have a certain degree of moneyness. And this concept of moneyness is important because treasury bonds, while they may not be strictly money, they have a certain degree of moneyness. And so, you know, when you think of things in this sort of scale rather than a black and white, you know, model, the world gets a lot more difficult to put into sort of this strict mathematical model, like the velocity of money likes to sort of define. And so to me, I don't find money velocity to be a very useful metric just because I don't think you can strictly define what M is in in this sort of you know mathematical sort of sense. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests to the maintenance to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. 
It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Colin, every week The Economist publishes economic and financial indicators for the 43 biggest economies in the world. And there are only three countries that have a uh, positive budget balance, Denmark, Norway, and Saudi Arabia. If you don't know what the budget balance is, it's the balance between total public expenditures and revenue in a specific year. So if you look at the U.S., minus 5.9% of GDP, euro area, minus 4.4%, communist China, that's minus 6.2%. So it's across the board. Does spending more money than you bring in create inflation? That to me is one of the big lessons of COVID is that when governments run big, big deficits, you have the risk of, of rising demand. And especially when you don't produce the, you know, the aggregate supply to meet that aggregate demand, you get a price increase. And so, yeah, that's one of the important lessons coming out of COVID. I think you know, this gets into a really sort of interesting theoretical debate of, um, you know, in the long run, it, it makes sense that balance sheets, I mean, in a fiat monetary system, balance sheets basically need to always expand. My deficit is somebody else's surplus. Somebody, in order for you to be able to save, you essentially have to rely on somebody else running a deficit to be able to create the financial assets to allow you to be able to save. And that can come from, it could come from the government, it could come from me, it could come from the corporate sector, it could come from the rest of the world sector. So, you know, that this balance sheet expansion doesn't have to come from the government, but it has to come from somebody in the long run. And that's, I think, a, an important thing to understand about how any, I mean, any credit-based system, you can get into this really interesting theoretical debate, though, about whether or not does that deficit have to come from the government sector, you know? And, and I don't know, honestly, I tend to, um, I mean, gosh, I've, you know, I wrote a book called The Pragmatic Capitalist. So like I, um, <laughs> I, I'm obviously, you know, amenable to capitalism more so than socialism. But and I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of the idea that the government can do things as well as the private sector in general. I think that when it comes to government spending, I think that the government generally should do things that the private sector simply cannot or will not do. So, for instance, like, operating a military is the perfect thing for a government to be doing because the private sector doesn't want to do that, can't make money from doing it. You know, it's pretty hard to make money when you rely on killing your workforce and blowing things up. You know, that's not a very profitable business endeavor. So, you know, things like that that have a sort of a negative net present value, those are perfect things for the government to do. And socially, we benefit from those things because obviously, you know, like if you have to go to war, 
that's something that needs to be done. And it doesn't, you kind of accept the reality that like, oh, during wartime, like maybe, you know, making money isn't the, the most important thing in the long run. And so that's all well and good. But you get into this debate about, you know, should the government then try to do things that have a positive net present value? Like that's essentially the role of the private sector is that all of us in the private sector, we're trying to add value and run operations that are essentially adding you know, present value to, to people in the future. And we do that by trying to run, you know, businesses or, or at a household level, trying to generate a net income, basically. And so the things that we do, they have to add value to other people. Whereas the government, in a lot of ways, the government can just do things that are socially good to some degree that, you know, maybe they don't have a, a positive net present value at the aggregate level. You know, maybe they're more charitable in terms of the way that they're being done. And so, you know, it, you get into this big debate of, of whether or not operating an economy to just run profits is in the best interest in the long run versus, you know, should we do things that are more charitable in nature that sort of, you know, take care of the social well-being of the country? And I think, you know, for the most part, I think that the developed world and the United States has done a pretty good job managing that balance of of government spending versus having a big mainly you know capitalist sort of private sector run economy with a a pretty large government sector attached to it but a government sector that for the most part does a lot of funding of financing and things in the private sector but for the most part doesn't do you know a lot of sort of crazy large negative net present value projects like you see in places like, for instance, I'd argue that a lot of the, you know, I mean, Latin America is like the perfect example of how not to run a, a, you know, this balance of private sector versus public sector. And the United States, for the most part, has done a pretty good job. You could argue that the last few years were really tricky in terms of navigating COVID and that we did a lot more than we should have, um, obviously, in retrospect. But for the most part, you know, this is a, it's a tricky debate. I tend to lean toward the, you know, the view that the government should sort of sit back and do these negative net present value projects, put out fires, run the military, and then, you know, manage the court system and kind of back off. Running a budget balance that's a negative budget balance in the long run is not necessarily bad. And I think running at least a, you know, having a government that runs a, a negative budget balance to some degree, even while it might be inflationary, it could still be perfectly consistent with generating social good in the long run. So there, I don't, I hesitate to say that, you know, running deficits is inherently bad, even though obviously we know now from COVID, for instance, running really, really large negative deficits is it can have a, a hugely inflationary impact. And so you, it's this balancing act where in the long run, I think, you know, you, you want a government that's regulating the economy and to some degree, and you want a government that is, you know, operating a military and doing these things that the private sector doesn't want to do, but nobody really knows the exact right balance. Yeah, and I think you bring up such a good point because it's also so value driven. Like, what is it that you want? And based on what you want and what your values are, you can come up with this is how much the government should be included or not be included, or should you even run a deficit in the first place? I, yeah, you know, if that's so, it's so subjective. It's so subjective. You get into this debate about living standards, and like, you know, it's one thing that I've always said and written about a lot on my website 
you know, that living standards in the United States have boomed in the last, you know, 100 years. You could argue that people today live better than at any point in human history. And which is weird to think about when you look at things like if you look at metrics like government debt or, you know, the value of the U.S. dollar, you see this all the time. I talk about it a lot. The the value of the, the U.S. dollar technically has declined in purchasing power terms by 95% over the course of the last 100 years. But living standards have boomed. And so it's this weird, very subjective debate where, yeah, at a basic sort of economic level, you have a decline in purchasing power, but living standards have actually increased substantially. And so, and that's in large part because we've produced a huge amount of real goods and services that have made life just better in general. And but it's all so highly subjective and different countries obviously value different stuff. And, you know, Europeans value very different things than Americans do. And so, yeah, it's, you know, people like different stuff and it becomes this very subjective argumentative debate about, you know, value judgments. It was a lot more political charged, I guess, what I said uh, before with my previous questions that I recently intended. But let me take you from the uh, frying pan into the fire. This uh, the next question here is tricky because many of our listeners are already thinking about retirement and inflation is really hard to pin down. Whenever you consider your portfolio and your financial needs when you retire, you're looking at hopefully decades to come. How do you include your inflation expectations in your asset allocation for retirees who have to live off the portfolios? This is a hard question. You know, I've, I've advocated increasingly, you know, in in recent years, I've become a big, big advocate of all weather portfolios. And I've always loved that concept of sort of having an allocation that protects you no matter what the the scenario is, whether it's, you know, the classic for people who aren't familiar, the, the classic sort of all weather portfolio was Harry Brown's four quadrant all weather, which basically was it was deflation inflation, recession, and expansion. And basically his sort of really simple model for that was that you wanted to own gold for inflation, you wanted to own stocks for growth, you wanted to own treasury bonds for deflation, and you wanted to own cash for recessions. And so you had this very simple 25% four quadrant breakdown of the portfolio that the theory was that this would protect you from all environments. And um, I've always been the thing that has always sort of, um, I think, made me reluctant about adopting that sort of a model and really embracing it aggressively is the the holding of 25% gold and 25% cash, just always from a basic portfolio theory perspective, struck me as that's too much, too much in both. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen with, you know, if, the, if for some reason, like the, the demand for gold was replaced by the demand for Bitcoin, let's say, for instance, in the next hundred years, well, you know, your, your inflation component there might not do anything. And so we've kind of seen that in the last few years, for instance, it's gold hasn't done as well considering the inflation that, um, that people might have expected. And actually a, a broader basket of just commodities has done much, much better. And so, you know, for me, from a financial planning perspective, I think you have to take inflation and this, you know, the asymmetric risk of it into consideration. And for most people, I always say the stock market in the long run is a is a pretty good inflation hedge, in large part because corporations, they basically earn a profit by 
buying things at whatever the rate of inflation is and then trying to mark them up. And so in the long run, something like the S&P 500 tends to be a pretty good inflation hedge. You, you see years like 2022, though, where, you know, it's you can go through periods where the stock market goes down. And in real terms, the stock market is down, what, you know, 25, 30 percent this year. And so you can get periods where the stock market volatility doesn't protect you in the short term. And that's where a lot of this gets tricky. And for most people, I always tend to, from a sort of financial planning perspective, I think you have to look at this holistically. So for instance, like, um, do you own a home? I mean, I like to, I think housing in the long run tends to be, or really owning real stuff tends to be a pretty good inflation hedge in the long run. I mean, real goods and services tend to be, and you could argue that stocks are to some degree just a, you know, real assets. Real assets in the long run are always good inflation hedges. But you can have these acute periods like this year or the last, you know, sort of 12 months where things like commodities are much better inflation hedges. And for me, you know, it's interesting timing bringing this up because I'm I'm about to publish a new paper. It's the first paper I've written in in years. It's called All Duration Investing. And my perspective on this basically is I'm trying to apply a concept that is similar to all weather, but I'm doing it in very specific time horizons. And so what I've done is I've actually calculated the duration of all asset classes across the board. I've calculated the duration of commodities, of equities. And what I mean by that is I'm using essentially a model where I'm assuming a point of indifference. And so to me, the point of indifference for an investor, when you think of of fixed income, you know, the traditional metric of duration is how indifferent is an investor in fixed income or bonds to losses, basically. So what will an increase in interest rates cause in terms of principal losses. And when you think of that as like a point of indifference, well, in the long run, a fixed income investor becomes indifferent to losses at some point because they're earning a higher interest rate. And at some point in the future, the highest, the higher interest rate pays off. You can do this across all instruments where you look at, for instance, um, if the stock market were to fall by 50%, well, future expected returns should increase typically in the long run. When asset prices decline, typically the value of that asset becomes actually, you know, it's kind of, you know, counterintuitive, but when asset prices fall, typically the future expected return of that asset should increase. At some point in the future, you become indifferent to the loss in that asset class. And so in my model, for instance, and a stock market investor is indifferent to losses on average over about an 18-year period. And so what I've done is calculated these durations for all asset classes and then plug this into a, a model across time. And to me, that's the key aspect of good financial planning is that you want to look at things in certain buckets, essentially, where, for instance, you've got, you need some cash in the short run to manage your, say, whether it's emergency funds or your monthly liabilities. But that's the way the financial system works is that the financial system is structured and our financial lives are structured across these very specific time horizons. And so you want buckets for short time horizons and medium time horizons. And let's say, you know, you're maybe you want to put a down payment on a home in the next five years, but you're not really sure where. Well, that money shouldn't be allocated to the stock market because the stock market, in my model, is this 18-year instrument. So if you need that money 
in the next five years, for instance, well, the stock market's not a good place to put that. It needs to go into an instrument that has an appropriate duration relative to that. And so something like um, cash or even an aggregate bond fund would fit that model inside of a five-year uh, time frame. And commodities and inflation hedges, the way that I calculated this, it's interesting. They're basically like 30 plus year instruments, but they have a highly short-term asymmetric payoff. So what I mean by that is that gold and commodities, they almost operate, I shouldn't say almost, they do, they operate like inflation insurance in a portfolio. So for instance, what is insurance in a financial planning aspect of a portfolio? Well, if you buy a 20-year term life insurance policy, you've bought a long-duration asset that has a highly asymmetric short-term payoff. So if I buy a term life insurance policy that has a 20-year term, and let's say I croak in two years, well, that instrument, although it had a 20-year duration, that instrument had a huge, real positive asymmetric payoff in a two-year period. So you can think of, I like to think of commodities and gold and inflation hedges in much the same way where they have the potential to provide you with this almost like insurance-like policy payoff in a short time horizon, even though they're really long-term instruments. And so if you think of this stuff sort of on a bell curve, I think it's useful to think of like building out your asset allocation in terms of like across these durations where the stock and bond market make up the, the core sort of central aspect of the bell curve. And then on the edges, you have things that have these sort of important real and nominal asymmetric payoffs where cash, for instance, it's going to lose in real terms every single year, but it provides you with absolute nominal certainty. And so on this left tail of the bell curve, you've got this absolute certainty in nominal terms. And on the right tail of the curve, you've got insurance type instruments. So gold, commodities, um, you could throw Bitcoin into there, things like that. Um, life insurance fits into that for sure. Things that have this sort of, you know, really... They're long duration instruments that have a potentially large asymmetric payoff. And you can, you know, depending on how, you know, personalized you need this all to be, you know, me personally, I tend to, you know, you got to start with the stock bond core and then you can build out all of your, you know, sort of tangential instruments on the side. But I think in the long run, you know, this fits into sort of an all weather approach um, in the sense that you can build out this model and this asset allocation approach where you're taking sort of a, this, what I call this all duration approach where you own things like commodities and gold, but they're there in a very specific allocation where, you know, let's say it's like 15% of your portfolio in total, where it's a, a relatively small portion, but it provides you with asymmetric certainty in environments like the one we're going through. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? 
They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Yeah, it's uh, it's such a tricky topic. I mean, you're, you're trying to forecast something for, for decades and you're doing that with instruments or assets that you don't know what's going to yield. And we depend on it. That's what makes it even more scary. Colin, in December 1989, the parliament in New Zealand decided on a 2% inflation target for the central bank. And this is perhaps more significant than it sounds like to our listeners, because this was the first formal target to be adopted by a central bank. And since then, many have adopted a similar 2% target, including the Fed and the ECB. 
And you can also argue that the lower the inflation target, the more unemployment the Fed would have to create to get there. Now let's get to the perhaps more controversial part of it. Remember that the Fed has this dual mandate of price stability and maximum employment, which seems to be counterintuitive. Of course, no one likes unemployment. And since there is a perceived little difference between a 2 and a 3% inflation, should the central bank then increase the target? What is the right amount of inflation in the economy? And should the government even have a positive inflation target? Um, you know, it, it's interesting. I think when you look back through history, I think the uh, part of the reason that they arrived at this sort of 2% target is because 2%, this sort of low rate of inflation, 1%, 2%, something like that, it's still consistent with rising living standards and historical data. And so, you know, from a basic financial system perspective, like I was saying before, you're always going to have, you need balance sheet expansion. You need somebody, somebody has to be borrowing and creating financial assets in order for the rest of us to save. And it's just a natural byproduct of, you know, population growth and increased productivity is that you're going to have more borrowing, more people, money isn't always equally distributed. And so, you know, when somebody wants to buy a new home, you know, they may not be able to find existing money. They may not have the, you know, the, the money in their pocket right now to be able to buy that home and build it. And so, you know, some level of borrowing is, is totally natural in a credit-based monetary system. The question is, does that credit growth have to coincide with inflation? And I think that's a much, much trickier discussion. I think that if you had a, an economic system where the private sector was the only borrower, where all money creation essentially was valued based on how productive it ultimately was, I think you would experience lower rates of inflation than we've seen. Um, the interesting thing with having a system like that, where when you have a, if you had a purely private-based financial system, well, you'd probably have higher degrees of things like inequality, which uh, then creates an argument for more government, which you get more government, then you get more inflation. You get more of that negative net present value spending potentially to try to equalize things. And so it gets... You get into this messy debate about what is the right size of government, really. And to me, I mean, personally, I don't think there's, there's not like a need in a, in a monetary system to have a positive rate of inflation. To me, it's just the positive rate of inflation is to a large degree, it's a byproduct of having a primarily capitalist-based system that is predominantly private sector run that also happens to have a fairly large government attached to it. And the, you know, I think you can make an argument that one to 2% inflation per year is sort of, it's the cost of having things like a public sector run court system and regulatory systems. And, you know, these things aren't free. And so to the extent that we borrow or, or, um, or that they just don't have a, in a, a net, you know, present value sense, they don't have a positive net present value in terms of like a profit sense. These things can result in, in some marginal inflation, I think that, you know, is that necessarily bad in the long run? Well, history would tell us that, you know, averaging one to 2% inflation is not necessarily consistent with declining living standards. So 
I don't know. I don't know the right answer. I would like to think that you don't need to have inflation in a monetary system, but I think that you know it's hard managing you know that that right balance of public sector versus private sector. And obviously, you know, you don't want really high inflation, but there's there doesn't seem to be an inconsistency between a low level of inflation and uh, and rising living standards in the long run. So, you know, maybe you know, maybe having a court system and the military and things like that, maybe those are just the, you know, the inflationary cost of of having a government in the long run. And the you can get into the debate about, you know, how much bigger the government should be than that. And I think that's a useful debate to have. But in general, I guess my answer is I don't really know. I don't know what exactly is the right rate of inflation, but we certainly know that anything over 2% or so seems to be problematic. At a minimum, it's consistent with social upheaval and and bigger societal problems that that do cause meaningful declines in living standards. So, I think we can all agree that nobody wants a high level of inflation, but you know whether or not the we want 0% inflation or 1% or 2%, I think is a much more uh, reasonable debate. You know, as, as much as we could say today, well, we should probably have, say, 3% because then we don't need to bring in as much unemployment. Everyone likes high employment. Well, it's a slippery slope. You know, we, we also have seen that before. If we tend to think that inflation is coming and like it becomes uh, self-reinforcing, does that mean that in the next crisis, we will say it's okay with a 4% or a 5%, and then what happens in the next crisis you know, following that? So it's really tricky. And it's as much as the 2% is arbitrary and the Fed is on record saying that it's arbitrary, it's definitely on purpose that it's in that level and it's positive and it's not deflation. MMT has been really popular in the last few years in terms of like the, the social discussion and like what their big policy discussion is that the government should run a job guarantee. And I've always been sort of skeptical of this idea because the basic thinking there is that you can give everybody a job. So the government guarantees everybody a job and they argue that there would be price stability. And so that's where you get into this very you know, theoretical debate about, is it even possible to have a society where everybody has a job, everybody's guaranteed a job and you have low inflation? I don't know. It, you know I'd like to think that that is certainly possible. You know, it'd be great if everybody was employed and doing something productive and happy. And oh, and we also just happen to have low rates of inflation. I'm pretty skeptical of whether or not that's possible. It's certainly never been done. And so, but you can also have the opposite where, you know, you have, you know, societies and economic periods where, you know, unemployment is super high. And obviously the trade-off for that is that sometimes the the rate of inflation is really low as a byproduct of that because demand is so low. And is that the Fed does not have an enviable job trying to manage the dual mandate of inflation and unemployment. Carter, let's continue with this thought experiment. Let's say that we would go into a prolonged period of not only disinflation, but for example, two decades of deflation. And I just wanted to clarify, disinflation is a lower but still positive inflation rate, whereas deflation is a negative inflation rate. So how would consumers and investors need to adjust to this prolonged deflationary period? Man, one of the most interesting charts I've ever seen is Japanese real estate in the last 20 to 30 years. I mean, we're so used to in the developed world 
real estate prices just always going up pretty much. You know, that was a part of what everyone kind of knows, like that was part of what caused the financial crisis to be so bad was that in the economic models, you know, all these investment banks assume that real estate prices just either wouldn't go down or wouldn't go down very much. And so when real estate prices went down 20, 30%, you know, that obviously that caused it, it threw a wrench in everything. And in Japan though, real estate prices have been going down for 20, 30 years, which is sort of unfathomable in the United States, but it's something that, you know, that sort of a scenario I mean, it keeps me up at night, to be honest, because you, the, again, the real estate market is such an impactful instrument in the, the entire U.S. economy. You'd have very, very low rates of growth. I mean, in that sort of a scenario, um, if that's something that you expected um, or if you thought it was a risk, you'd want to own, counterintuitively, you'd want to own a ton of bonds. So bonds in Japan were the thing that hedged people from... You know, people talk about how the Japanese equity market has been down over this, you know, this sort of, you know, lost decade or whatever. Well, the thing that people don't always point out is that if you owned a 60-40 portfolio denominated in yen, where you own the, the Nikkei, for instance, and Japanese government bonds, well, you actually did okay because the government bonds performed so well that your relative performance was okay. So diversification actually worked out okay in Japan because of the bond component. But the same sort of scenario would play out in the United States where you know people are worried about inflation now and they're worried that, oh, bonds are dead. But if you got prolonged, entrenched deflation, the, the bonds are the things that would perform really well in that in terms of an asset allocation. So you know, again, kind of going back to that sort of all duration or all weather sort of perspective, you know, it's why I always advocate, I always tell people, you know, you, you always need to hold some cash and short-term bonds and even some intermediate, potentially long-term bonds. Treasury bonds are, you know, they're sort of that deflation insurance-like product, super long duration instrument. But yeah, in terms of like an economic outcome, it's hard for me to imagine that wouldn't be sort of a disastrous scenario, that it wouldn't be coinciding with something, you know, much more negative in terms of what's occurring, just because the, in order to get this sort of 20 year period of entrenched in uh, deflation, you'd have to have not just negative, probably demographic growth, you'd have to have declines in productivity and really, you know, almost like 0% GDP probably for decades, which would not be, obviously would not be great. So is that going to happen? Personally, I, I think that's a low, a low probability just because the demographic trends, even as bad as they are, in the United States and a lot of some of the developed world, they're not necessarily going to be negative. And I think productivity will continue to be relatively strong. And it's hard for me. The United States is still such a real estate-based economy that when you look at it in the long run, I mean, God, looking at it from like a supply perspective, like one of the problems in housing is there's a huge shortage of housing. And so um, in the long run, is that is there are we going to stop building homes in the United States? you know, using a sort of crude housing is the economy sort of model, it's hard for me to imagine that even with the ebbs and flows in the long run, there is a lot of building to be done in the United States in terms of building out the, you know, the real estate market. Well said. Now, Colin, let's transition into the next topic of today, which is the concept of the Fed put, 
which dates back to the era of Alan Greenspan, former chair of the Fed. Starting with the stock crash of 1987, the Fed cut rates whenever share prices plunged. If you're an investor, it resembles the benefit of a put option where your downside is getting cut. Some argue that we're now heading for a time with a Fed call, which is exactly the opposite, meaning capping the investor's upside. We know from studies of the wealth effect that the wealthier people feel they are from the stock holdings, the more they spend. One study from Howard University shows three cents of increased spending on each dollar of increased stock wealth, plus increased employment and wages. All of this adds to inflation, which currently seems to counter the main objective of the Fed. So with all of that being said, do you think, Colin, that we're heading into a period of the Fed call? There's a lot of different transmission mechanisms for monetary policy. And to me, interest rates are a very powerful policy lever. I do not think, people tend to think, you know, when people talk about, um, you know, like the Fed put, they often talk about quantitative easing and like the balance sheet expansion. And I just, I don't think quantitative easing is as powerful as a lot of other people tend to think. And I think that, you know, drawing these correlations between like the Fed's balance sheet and the stock market to me is just sort of silly. Like the, I mean, the Bank of Japan increased their balance sheet for decades and the, you know, the Nikkei, you know, had a marginal correlation to these changes. So, you know, there's scenarios where the, or the ECB also like, you know, the, the European stock markets performed on a relative basis horribly compared to the U.S. stock market and the ECB was ramping up their balance sheet. So what was the, you know, it seems like there's very mixed evidence on whether or not the balance sheet expansion really is the, is that the Fed put? To me, the the Fed put and the or what we're seeing now, sort of the Fed call, is really the interest rate impact and the way that the Fed can very precisely, or I shouldn't say precisely, I should say the the Fed can very, you know, almost like a you know using a hammer um, can sort of bludgeon the economy with interest rate changes, and that's you know, that's a lot of what we've seen in the last six months is this repricing of assets because interest rates have changed so dramatically. And that's a very, very blunt instrument, but it's a very, very impactful in- instrument, especially when it's when it's used in a very aggressive way, which is what the Fed's been doing. And so, I, yeah, they've made it very clear. I think that they've, um, have they overreached? I think at this point, that's the bigger question. I think that's the, the question that the stock market and the broader economy is now grappling with is, has the Fed implemented this call in a short-term period where they've raised rates so fast that they've sort of bludgeoned the real estate market, basically? Have they snuffed out demand for real estate to a, an extent that, yeah, it'll fix inflation because it's going to fix the demand side of everything but have they overreached have they are they now going to find themselves going into 2023 having to backtrack a little bit because you know the they caused some unemployment and that's where you get into that you know that dual mandate balance and what a you know tricky balancing act it is because now you know it's it's crazy the fed forecast of fed funds futures they actually forecast falling rates in 2023. So the Fed has sort of, you know, put themselves in this position where, yeah, they've raised rates very aggressively. It looks like they're going to get, hopefully they're going to get inflation under control, but are they going to do so by driving the economy into sort of this prolonged or deep state of 
of um, either negative or zero growth where you get a jump in the unemployment rate that causes them to then have to implement you know, the Fed put again to cause a reversal in a lot of these trends. Personally, I don't think the Fed can afford to continue to implement this so-called Fed call in the long run in an aggressive sense that you know, they won't continue to raise rates really aggressively because I think they'll cause too much damage to the housing market. So you know, kind of going back to our, the beginning of our discussion, that risk of deflation to me is higher than the risk of, of inflation or prolonged high inflation going forward in large part because of the Fed's policy response. I think they overreached a little bit. The mortgage market has started to adjust some already. Um, we've seen interest rates retrench a little bit in the last month. And I'd be shocked if they continue to really put the pedal to the metal because I think there's a really meaningful risk now that the housing market is slowing and that it's slowing at an uncomfortable pace that could result in you know, we're having this big debate in the United States over whether there's a recession, and it's kind of a silly debate whether two quarters of negative growth. I wouldn't be shocked if we've had if we end up having four quarters of either low or negative growth in a row. Is that going to be technically a recession? I don't know, but it's not good in a big, big bind here. I don't think they can afford to implement a long-term Fed call because I don't think they can. I think doing so would result in pulverizing the real estate market in essence. That would force them to re-implement the Fed put, basically. So let's talk about the rates. We often hear in the business news that the market has priced in a hike of 50, 75, 100 basis points, or whatever it might be. Where can we find that information or you know, that website that says, this is what the market has priced in? And what does that number imply for investors? The best place to always look is the two-year, the two-year treasury that is reflective of the future expectations of Fed policy in essence. So for instance, the the two-year peaked at like 3.4%, you know, what was it, a month or two ago? We're at 2.9 right now. The Fed funds rate is only what? It's 2.3 or so. The effective Fed funds rate is 2.3 right now. So even though they've made it very clear they're going to raise rates to probably at least 3%, the two-year treasury is, is priced that in. It's been, it was more aggressively priced um, even just a month or two ago. So that's usually the place to look is the, the short end of the treasury curve usually front runs the Fed and they try to get ahead of where the Fed is going to be. And so you can't just look at, you know, like a lot of people, I see this on Twitter all the time where people are like, oh, the, you know, the, the rate of inflation is you know, 8% and the Fed is only at 1%. And it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, even a year ago, the two-year treasury bill priced in way more than 1% Fed funds rate. So, and this is part of how Fed policy theoretically works. Well, not theoretically, this is how it really works is that they tell you, they tell the market where rates are going to go. And they're trying to, you know, it's called open mouth policy, basically. They're, they're communicating to the market, hey, we're going to do this. And you know, there's a lot of theory about how powerful this is, but it, it certainly, you see it reverberate through the actual bond markets where the two-year treasury will respond to these comments in a sort of hyperactive manner where bond traders do reprice what the Fed does. And the, you know, I always like to, to use the analogy of the, the Fed curve and the interest rate structure is a lot like a man walking a dog. And the, you know, if you think of the Let's say the two-year treasury is the is the dog, 
well, the Fed's holding the leash, but the Fed, the Fed basically, when they say they're going to raise interest rates to like 3%, well, what they're really doing is they're letting the leash out a little bit. So they're letting the dog run out. The dog gets ahead. The dog front runs where the Fed is going to be in the future. And so even though the man might be holding this tight leash where you know he's only allowing what looks like a 2% interest rate increase, the dog is already out there at 3%. And that's what you see in the two year. And so that's the that's the best place to look when you're looking for, you know, what are the market expectations? And it's weirdly, it's actually one of the worrisome things right now is that the two year is high relative to the 10 year. And so, you know, people talk about this yield curve and the yield curve inversion. What the yield curve is basically saying right now is that the the 10 year expectation of rates is lower than the two year expectation of rates, which is consistent with what we were just talking about, how you know, the risk of this policy mistake is being priced in that the Fed, yeah, in the short term, they're going to go to 3%. But in the long run, are they going to end up having to retrace back to, you know, two and a half or 2%. And that's what the market is grappling with right now. Colin, as always, it's been fantastic speaking with you about inflation, this second part here, or inflation masterclass. Is there anything where you feel like we skipped over it? Anything you wanted to add to the conversation? No, I feel like I talked so much. <laughs> I talked too much. People are probably like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure people are not like that at all, Colin. It has been absolutely amazing. As always, speaking with you, I already look forward to the 10th time that we're going to bring you on. Colin, where can the audience learn more about you, uh, anything that you're up to? My main website is Pragmatic Capitalism. I started a new YouTube channel recently called 3 Minute Money. If people want, they're sort of short, concise educational, mostly videos on money and finance. And keep an eye out for my new paper, the all duration paper. I think it's pretty cool. It's one of the the first like things I'm kind of excited about having written in uh, a really long time. I haven't published a paper in, I don't know, five years. I, not that that's something I try to do often or am proud about necessarily, but um, it's, I think it's a, it's a cool sort of counterintuitive look at building out asset allocation models and a new framework for thinking about things across a very time-specific perspective of asset allocation that's very, very financial planning consistent. So I think it's cool. I think that uh, people will like it and uh, keep an eye out for it. I'll publish it uh, probably on SSRN and hopefully some journals and um, certainly on PragCap. Colin, as always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for making time for the Investors Podcast. It's always great to talk to you guys. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.